1: Welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, and I'm a co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese. In our bi-monthly podcasts, we talk with philosophers about their ideas as expressed in their newly published books. Today's interview is with Paul Thagard, professor of philosophy at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. His latest book, The Cognitive Science of Science, is just out from the MIT Press. We've all heard about scientific revolutions, such as the change from the Ptolemaic geocentric universe to the Copernican heliocentric one, or from the Newtonian mechanical picture of matter in motion to the probabilistic framework of quantum mechanics. Such changes are the meat and potatoes of historians of science and philosophers of science. But another perspective is from the point of view of cognition. Thinking about thinking is what cognitive scientists do— And the cognitive science of science is thinking about how scientists think. For example, how do scientists come up with breakthroughs? What happens when a scientist confronts a new theory that conflicts with an established one? In what ways does her belief system change? And how? What factors can impede her her acceptance of a new theory? Such general concerns like these lie behind pressing issues such as global warming, For example, the idea that carbon dioxide being trapped in the atmosphere might cause global warming has been around since 1896, and the link between measured increases in carbon dioxide levels and human activities, such as fossil fuel burning, uh, was made in the 1980s. But it still took a while for scientists to agree, as they do today, that human activity is a major cause of global warming and there's still disagreement over whether there is any need to take costly action. Thagard presents a comprehensive discussion of some of the critical aspects of how scientists think, including the development of scientific explanations and theories, the process of scientific discovery and creativity, and the process of change in scientific beliefs, from developing and acquiring new concepts to switching from one whole conceptual framework to another. He defends an explanatory coherence view of belief revision, proposes how normativity or values can be incorporated into scientific thinking, proposes a model for explaining resistance to new scientific ideas, and even indicates why so much creative thinking goes on in the shower and during other moments of downtime. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Paul Thagard. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Uh, welcome to New Books in Philosophy.
0: Oh, thank you very much. I'm really happy to have a chance to chat with you about my new book.
1: Yeah. Um, so this is, the book is The the Cognitive Science of Science. Um, and uh, maybe before we get into the the specifics of uh, the chapters, um, we might give a, a little description of what The Cognitive Science of Science is is, um, what the general idea is, and um, what's so special about the cognitive science of science. Um, And and in this, I mean, you might mention how you got into this project, um, and perhaps even into philosophy in general.
0: Well, lots of people are interested in science because it's such an important part of our world. Uh, You find people working in fields like history of science and sociology of science, and of course philosophers are familiar with the branch of philosophy called philosophy of science. What makes the cognitive approach different is that it's trying to draw on an interdisciplinary way of understanding different kinds of thinking. It's interdisciplinary because it draws not just on one field like Philosophy or sociology or, or history, but on a bunch of fields that have amalgamated over the last 50 or 60 years to try to understand lots of different kinds of thinking, including scientific thinking. So, cognitive science combines all these different fields psychology, neuroscience, computer modeling, and so on. And the cognitive science of science is the attempt to use that common understanding to get uh, a sense of the structure and the growth of scientific knowledge. In philosophy of science, that's traditionally been done by using techniques from uh, formal logic or by drawing ideas from the history of science. But I think that the cognitive science of science provides a lot of really useful techniques for getting a deeper understanding of what scientific knowledge actually consists of and how it can grow over time.
1: Um, So how does this uh, connect with your own sort of broader philosophical uh, interests?
0: Well, going back to my first interest in philosophy, I guess we're more broadly in epistemology and the theory of knowledge. But already as an undergraduate, I became convinced that the best way to understand the nature of knowledge was to look at the best examples that we have of knowledge, namely scientific examples, which I found far more interesting than the rather mundane Things like, how do I know I have a hand, which is a, a stock and trade of epistemologists. So I became convinced that looking at science, and especially looking at the history of science, was a, was a really valuable way to do epistemology. And shortly after I got my PhD, I had the good fortune to encounter a group of people working in the cognitive sciences and was struck immediately by how much richer an account I could give of the nature of scientific knowledge if I drew on the conceptual repertoire that you get from fields like um, psychology and artificial intelligence. So I guess I didn't really work with this name, but I started working on the cognitive and science of science in the late 70s because I was struck by how much could be added to the usual repertoire of philosophers of science by drawing on the cognitive sciences.
1: So one of the, um, uh, one of the, the, broader epistemological issues that you that you start with in the book um is the topic of belief revision, right? Of how we go about updating our beliefs when we you know are presented with new evidence. Um, and you give what you call a an explanatory coherence theory. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe say what you mean by, you know, if you could give an outline of the explanatory coherence theory um as opposed to its its main competitors i suppose and then um as i understand it one of the uh more unusual features of of the explanatory coherence theory um is the idea that um emotions or emotional attitudes um need to be taken account of within the model um so if, could you could you explain that view please
0: yeah, well, The idea of explanatory coherence has been around in philosophy for a long time. Uh, Gilbert Harman developed a lot of the basic ideas uh, back in the 60s, and going back further, Charles Peirce's ideas about abductive inference I think are very relevant to thinking about how people form and evaluate beliefs based on what he called abductive reasoning, which is basically considering the extent to which Uh, hypotheses provide explanations. Now, in the 80s, I realized that a formal account could be given of explanatory coherence by bringing in ideas from uh, neural network modeling, ideas called connectionist. And so, I developed a computer model of explanatory coherence that's now been applied to many, many different cases in the history of science. In my 90s book, uh, Conceptual Revolutions, I showed that it could account for all of the scientific revolutions, cases where rev- beliefs are revised based on on new evidence. What I do in, the, in this current book is to apply it to uh, a really live current issue in, not just in science, but in politics uh, concerning climate change. So I was asked to write an article on belief revision, but I wanted to not simply rehash uh, alternative ideas, but to apply to a new case. And so here's the basic case that applies to climate change. Uh, Why is it that the vast majority of scientists now believe that climate change is taking place and is caused by human activity? Uh, At the same time that many politicians, especially in the United States, are uh, denying that fact. So there's two things to be explained there what has made scientists who didn't think much about climate change until the last few decades almost unanimously adopt the view that the cause of global warming is uh, human activity, whereas lots of, of uh, politicians and oil company executives want to <laughs> deny that. So uh, explanatory coherence, I think, applies very well to the, to the case of where the scientists are doing it, and I, and I think they're doing it right. Uh, alternative theories would include different kinds of reasoning with probability theory which people have proposed or you could go back to something like the confirmation theory that was part of the logical positivist view of belief revision or recent logic based accounts of belief revision um but i don't think they can capture in nearly the kind of detail what goes on in evaluating hypotheses such as the climate change ones and the way that the explanatory uh, coherence uh, theory does. Now, one of the virtues, I think, of that theory, because it's intended to be a psychologically plausible one, it's not just an abstract logical model, it's supposed to be normative, but it's also describing what I think people do when they're doing it right, is that you can see ways in which it can break down, and so you can use variations on that theory to explain why there's opposition to... to uh, to theories about climate change. You can explain why, despite the very large amount of evidence that people have accumulated that makes it, I think, highly coherent that uh, climate change is caused by people, there are still lots of people who want to do that. And so I, I think it's a, a, a virtue here that you can see not only why people get the right answer, but you can also see why lots of people are getting it wrong.
1: So... so- is the resistance by by non-scientists, uh, I mean, your, is your theory explaining resistance among scientists uh, and how that resistance gets slowly break, broken down and, and why there remains that resistance by non-scientists?
0: It should be able to do both. In the cases of scientific revolutions that I did, I was able to explain why, one theory was dominant at a time, but then lost its dominance because collection of new evidence and the development of alternative theories allowed for the adoption of a new theory that had more explanatory coherence. Famous examples are things like uh, Einstein's theory of relativity or Darwin's theory of evolution. In the case of the climate change, there really isn't much opposition among uh, scientists to the basic claims that climate change is taking place and that people are causing it. That's something like 95% uh, acknowledged by, by scientists. So there's no op- opposition there to be explained. The opposition is from the general public and from politicians and from Oil company executives, and that requires a different kind of psychological mechanism to, to explain why it is they're not going along with the scientific consensus.
1: Uh huh. Do, do you have anything to say about why exactly that they're not going along with the consensus?
0: Sure. In order to do that, I, I supplement the explanatory coherence theory with an idea drawn from social psychology called motivated inference. Uh, it's something that all of us are prone to. All of us are like theories that are in our own personal interests better than, uh, than the alternatives. But what motivated inference does is not just wishful thinking. It's not just, uh, oh, I want to believe that so I will. The psychological process is much more complicated in which people Rely selectively on different kinds of evidence, and so they are looking at the evidence, but then they put it together in a way that isn't the most explanatorily coherent view. But it is coherent with their own personal goals and with their emotions. So it's a kind of emotional coherence that that leads people to think, uh, "Oh, we don't want climate change to be a problem because then we'd have to do something about the." production of greenhouse gases, which would require slowing down the economy or putting brakes on uh, oil company activities. And so people who are highly motivated to keep the economy, especially the oil-based economy going, have these kinds of motivations or emotional coherence for rejecting the scientific views.
1: Well, one, one of the differences actually that, that struck me um, was that you mentioned in the book was the dis, the the broad agreement as you said not like 95% or more um of agreement on you know human causes of global warming um you know the fact of global global warming and the causes of it um and yet there's also still disagreement about um whether we need to do you know what we need to do about it um with um you know, among scientists. I mean, I don't, I don't mean politicians or the or the general public. Um, uh, could could you maybe say something about you know why even even among in the scientific community why that disagreement remains?
0: Well, there you're getting into a, a different issue than explanatory coherence. Okay. And explanatory coherence is addresses the question of of what's true, of what hypotheses you should accept. Yeah. Uh, so if you if you accept the, the the hypotheses that global warming is taking place and that humans are causing it, you're still left the problem of what to do about it. And there you end up with all sorts of different issues. I call that in uh, earlier work, uh, deliberative coherence, uh-huh. where you've got to figure out what's the best way to accomplish your goals. And that introduces all sorts of difficult problems. It basically becomes uh, questions not of science, but questions of engineering. Uh-huh. What's, what, what are the best ways to engineer solutions to... The climate change problem, and so there, there are a lot of different possibilities, and uh, it's not at all obvious which of them will work. And so, I think that's why there's much more debate about that question than about the actual fact that climate change is taking place and humans are responsible for it.
1: Okay. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned truth, which you know we assume, or or many people assume, is is the goal of science. Although not all philosophers of science agree with that. Um, um and and the idea and you also link the idea of coherence um uh, not just among you know coherent theor- coherence among beliefs but also a coherence theory of truth, as I take it, um rather than say a correspondence theory um or even a deflationary
0: notion. the explanatory coherence theory is part of the theory of knowledge, not part of the theory of reality uh, so I think that in fact what coherence can get you if you follow the principles of explanatory coherence theory is a theory that at least has a chance of being true. But uh, as you know, there are lots of objections to coherence theories of truth. Uh, People can have highly coherent views that are not very well connected with reality at all. You find that in politics. You find it in people who are mentally ill. You find it among cults. So actually, I don't think that that coherence uh, is uh, much of a theory of truth. I prefer a more traditional correspondence view. But the claim is that if you're trying to figure out what kind of reasoning will bring you toward theories that are true, I don't know of a better account than the explanatory coherence one. So I reject I the view that coherence is truth, but think that it's the best way to try to come up with better and better theories that we can make some claim approximate to the truth in the sense of correspondence.
1: I see. Okay, so what, you, um, what I did note was that you argue for coherence of the right kind, as leading to approximate truth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
0: yeah. The reason that problem arises is that there have been lots of theories in the history of science that had a fair amount of coherence of that we now know are false. So one of the most famous ones in chemistry is the phlogiston theory. Uh, so the phlogiston theory says that the reason things burn is because they're giving off a substance called phlogiston. And this was the dominant view in the 18th century, and it really could uh, explain a lot. I think it, was legitimately adopted on the basis of explanatory coherence. But now you have the problem for science. If, if science can adopt theories that have explanatory coherence that turn out to be false, well, can you ever have much confidence in any theory that has a lot of explanatory coherence? Maybe that's just going to eventually be found to be false as well. Right. This has been labeled the pessimistic induction. Uh, that all theories turn out eventually to be false. And so different philosophers of science have tried to come up with different ways of responding to the pessimistic induction by, for example, trying to say that something like the phlogiston theory at least maybe got reference right or was partially true. I think that's a mistake. I think it, it was a theory that we have to acknowledge was the best available in its day, and it was just false. There is no such thing as phlogiston. So the question is, do we have to be pessimistic, or can we find any reason to think that a theory of combustion based on oxygen, which everybody believes today and has for hundreds of years, is going to be a much more sustainable theory than something like the phlogiston theory. And I think the answer is definitely yes, if you manage to see that coherence is something that can involve, that can involve different levels of explanation. Uh, if once you see that uh, oxygen... When it was directly proposed by Lavoisier as an alternative, to the phlogiston theory was just battling it out on one level of explanation. But now, with the development of, of, of lots of theories in physics and chemistry, we've got a much better idea of how it is that oxygen works. And so we've moved on to what I call deeper explanations that provide some additional reason for thinking that the oxygen theory is true.
1: Um, so that's the that's the coherence of the right kind is the one in which you get the what you call the the deepening and the
0: widening. Or I believe, right? Well, all all of the explanatorily coherent theories have widening. So uh-huh. phlogiston could explain quite a few things, and it explained more things as it went along. But no one could ever figure out how phlogiston worked. In fact, it seemed absolutely weird that. Uh, especially once Lavoisier found out that when you burn things, they actually gain weight rather than losing it. And so it, it had a lot, of, a lot of problems with it. No one could figure out how phlogiston works. Whereas now we know how oxygen works because we know how uh, atoms form into molecules and we know how subatomic particles form into atoms. And so there's been a lot of deepening there. So if in cases where you've got a theory that's gotten better and better in the sense of explaining more that 's what widening is, but it also has got better and better because we can see the underlying mechanisms that make it work. I think in those cases we 've got pretty good grounds for thinking that the theory isn 't going to end up in the dustbin of history along with the phlogiston theory
1: so uh, so the uh, the pessimistic indu- uh, induction that you know eventually the sci- any scientific theory will be will be proven or be, will be shown to be false in the long run. You you disagree with that?
0: Yeah, I think it was a pretty good summary or induction from a lot of early cases in science up to, say, the 19th century. But there have been many cases since then where we see theories that have survived very well, and they've just gotten deeper and deeper. A great example is Darwin's theory of evolution. When Darwin proposed his theory of evolution by natural selection, it deservedly got accepted because it had a great deal of a coherence with lots of different facts. Um, but no one really knew how some of the aspects of it are going to work. In particular, Darwin didn't have a good theory of how it is that when there's variation in parents, they pass those variations on to their offspring. He didn't have a good theory of variation. He had a, a really kind of ad hoc one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the 20th century, genetic theory developed, and that provided a deepened explanation of how the variations that need to be passed on from the parents in one species to their children can operate. And so that's a, a wonderful example of a, of a theory that's been deepened and thereby got additional explanatory coherence. So like the oxygen theory, Darwin's theory, I don't think is going to be overturned because it's gotten broader and broader over the years, but it's also got deeper and deeper over the years through the identification of the mechanisms by which it operates.
1: So, so in a sense, in, 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 in major areas of science, um, We can sort of see an an end of science in a way, uh, other than, you know, just sort of day to day activities, but um, a sense where maybe just there aren't any more revolutions to happen. It's 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 over.
0: Oh, I don't see any prospect for the end of science, <laughs> so given uh, given that the, uh, well, all, all current theories have uh, some problems. Just look at, for example, what's happened in uh, biology in the last decade. People thought they had genetics sorted out, but in the last decade, people have realized that the simple model that genes produce proteins that can lead to different behaviors was not right at all, and that the genes have to be chemically modified in order to do a lot of interesting things. This is called the theory of epigenetics. So biology is changing quite dramatically right now. Even in physics, there are people looking for uh, major alternatives to the two dominant theories, relativity theory and quantum theory, uh, both of them are extremely successful in their own domains. The problem is that they're not compatible with each other. Yeah. And so people think there has to be something deeper that can unify them. That's why people are looking for different kinds of quantum gravity theories. Uh, so I don't see any prospect at all for for any of this ending. Ideally, we can just keep on getting theories that are wider and theories that are that are deeper one of the things that happens though in these kinds of developments is you get an understanding uh that involves not just completely throwing out the old theory like phlogiston which turns out to be just a mistake or or the uh the theory that species were divinely created by by uh, uh, the decision of a deity, uh, that one does get thrown out along with Darwin's theory of evolution comes along. Uh-huh. But rather, I think it becomes more common to get some understanding of why the old theory was only partially correct. And so you don't actually abandon the old theory. So one classic case of that is when relativity theory came along, it did replace Newton's theory, but people still use Newton's theory all the time for building machines because it's approximately correct if you're not dealing with large gravitational fields. So I don't see any prospect for the end of science, but I think that a lot of the theories we've got now are going to survive at least as components of of broader theories.
1: So but I, I suppose when you said that you know the you didn't see the prospect of the of Darwinian you know evolutionary theory being overturned um I I I took that as a case where you know within the confine you know obviously there's a there are different levels of of theorizing um but that basic framework is is it right and and there can be changes you know sort of within that framework but but there's no sense in which it makes it makes sense to to question that framework at this point in time.
0: Yeah, and I think it probably will survive in, in its basic form that there is evolution by natural selection. Although the understanding of how um, natural selection works is something that's still up for grabs. People are still arguing about whether there's selection at the individual level or at the group level. Those issues aren't right. settled. But the general outlines of evolution by natural selection as Darwin's sketch that I think is an incredibly good theory that's unlikely to go away. So it's not going to succumb to the pessimistic induction. Okay.
1: Um, l- let me turn to the idea of um, uh, your discussion of, of creativity. Um, you know, obviously one of the most important, you know, features of science, um, one of the most interesting, um, and and one in which you say that you know science students need to be sort of shown more, you know, rather than just memorizing, these are the facts and these are the theories, but, you know, the, these are the areas where real creativity and innovation are required. Um, uh, so could you explain a bit about uh, your view of of uh, scientific creativity through what you call a combinatorial conjecture?
0: Sure. Uh, let me just step back a bit because sure. I think that the t- whole topics about discovery and creativity are one of the ways in which a cognitive science approach has got uh, enormous advantages over what can be done otherwise. Within a framework of formal logic or within a purely historical account, it becomes hard to explain how it is that people, in this case scientists, get to come up with creative new ideas. And it was really the the an interest in in discovery, people like Darwin that most intrigued me about looking to cognitive science. And initially, back in the early days of of, uh, cognitive science, psychological models were the best way to go. But one thing that's, that's happening now that I think is really exciting in cognitive science is it's increasingly possible both theoretically and empirically to look at the brain processes that are doing it. So we could think about creativity as involving new concepts, but we can think about concepts as patterns of activity in, in the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that means we can start to think about the neural processes as well as the psychological processes that are responsible for, for creativity. Now, one of the psychological processes that people have long been interested in is the idea that new ideas come about just by combining old ones. Um, many 20th century writers on creativity have uh, discussed it. Uh, Margaret Bowden one of the best known, but the idea actually goes back to the 19th century. So far, I've been able to trace it back to someone with the improbable name of George Washington Bethune who wrote a book about genius in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, so but it's an idea that lots of people have had and I think it's a powerful one that it's not a mystery where ideas come from. They don't just get pulled out of the air. The way you get new ideas is to combine old ones. Uh, so one of the chapters in the book is intended to be a kind of a test of the conjecture that all creativity requires combination of previous representations. Many people have assumed it. In fact, I assumed it. Uh, But uh, somebody challenged me on it and said, well, how do you know that that's true? What's the evidence for it? Because people usually just give it anecdotally. They just say, "Oh, well, think about Darwin. He had uh, evolution and he had natural selection, which he got by analogy to thinking about breeding. And so that's where natural selection comes from. It's definitely a combination. But who says that's all of creativity? So for that chapter, what I decided to do was to take not just one or two case studies, but to look at lots of examples. And in Predictor, I looked at 100 examples of scientific discovery and 100 examples of, of uh, invention, technological invention and tried to show that all of them involve combination. So the the combinatorial conjecture is the idea that discovery and creativity aren't anything magical. They're just a matter of the mind putting together ideas that it already has into some new sort of package, which I think turns out to be true.
1: Well, I guess there's there's two different ways in which... Um, I'm, I'm not sure. The, okay, one way to think of it is, you know, you put two things together, um, and another is you put two things together, and then something, you know, sort of emerges. Um, you know, not. In other words, uh, there are. There's the the idea that, um, uh, composition uh you know something is nothing but the parts and a composition where you get a whole that is something more than the parts and i wasn't sure which of those two views of of combinatorial conjecture regarding concepts um you you intended
0: There's certainly lots of possibilities for emergent here. Uh, I don't think uh, emergence is anything very uh, um, mystical. Emergence takes place when you end up with a whole having uh, properties that are important that aren't either properties of the parts or a simple sum of the properties of the parts. And there's loads of cases in which that happens in, in science, and I'm perfectly happy to think of. The combination of ideas is being one like that. Uh, So take the example I gave before. When you take uh, natural processes going on in um, all all different species, and you take the idea of selection, which was familiar to Darwin because he was a breeder, and you put them together, you get natural selection, and that's different from what people were previously talking about and is going on in nature, and it's certainly different from what goes on in the breeding experiments where where people are quite intentionally trying to produce a dog with a longer nose or something like that. Uh, So, yeah, emergence can definitely happen as a result of the combinations of ideas. Otherwise, you wouldn't get the powerful new explanatory techniques which science is producing all the time
1: you You also mentioned um, in terms of creativity uh, uh, looking more at creativity in terms of developing new methods um and and what occurred to you, you you know this was an area you thought that that requires more research right it wasn't something that you went into, but it was something that you that you said um, is a really fruitful you know area for for new research and one of the um uh what occurred to me was optogenetics right the um uh, new methods of of looking at neural activity um, could you maybe say something uh, you know, I know you didn't write a lot about this in the book. Um, could you maybe say something about why um that's such a an interesting new field for looking at in terms of in terms of uh scientific creativity?
0: I have to say this is something that's currently on my to do list oh okay <laughs> I've been calling this procedural creativity uh-huh. because I realized after after writing um uh, that that chapter, the chapters on uh, creativity in the book, that this has been neglected. There's lots of work by me and by other people on how new concepts arise from combinations or how new theories can arise from combinations of concepts. But I only realized, partly through some work I've been doing looking at artistic creativity, that the development of new methods is really important, too. We think of things, for example, uh, um, in in literature as the stream-of-consciousness way of writing that became popular in the early 19th century. So there are new literary techniques in the same way there are scientific techniques like the optogenetics ones you, you mentioned that are really important. But actually, I don't know any literature at all in any of the fields that are interested in creativity and discovery that have looked at these sorts of methods. So what needs to be done is... Uh, uh, acquisition of or identification of a lot of different key kinds of of procedural creativity that takes place and I try to get an understanding of the sorts of reasoning or the sorts of combinations that go into them. But I, I wish I had an answer for you now but that's yeah. that's intended for a book on creativity I hope to write someday.
1: Well, uh, and one other thing about creativity was um, uh I once came across uh, an interview with, with Lyle Lovett um in which he says uh something like um you know the shower is just so incredibly a creative place to be and you know he's not sure why it's maybe it's the hot water or something like that um mm-hmm. why is it that that some uh some contexts are are more conducive to,
0: to creative thought than others Well, one of the chapters in the book is about creativity and computer science, where uh, we found that there are lots of computer scientists that say something very similar to Lie and it." And so what could country music and uh, computer computer programming have in common? And it does seem that there's something like a shower effect in both cases. I think that has to do with, in fact, the the combinatorial process. So when you're doing very focused sort of problem solving, where you're trying to write a song or you're trying to write a computer program, you're usually working with a set of things that are assembled. You've got the things in front of you. And so it's particularly creative because you're not bringing things into juxtaposition that aren't normally juxtaposed, which is a crucial part of it. One reason I think that the shower or going for a run or the first thing you wake up in the morning, which is when I tend to be most creative, is because the ideas have been jumbling around, and so they're not subject to the usual kinds of logical reasoning or, or rule-based problem solving, which is what we do when we're really focusing on something. So I think the reason that showers and, uh, and other kinds of relaxation activities can be really uh, creative, it's because you get away from the standard stock of ideas that you normally have active at a time and you get the chance to jumble together things that weren't previously connected.
1: So do you, th- I mean, given the, the, the combinatorial you know a conjecture that you make um do, do you think there's some sort of basic set of concepts like a periodic table of concepts that you that we you know kind of consistently call upon to to build up the larger concepts
0: maybe down at some um, um, some really fundamental level. I'm sure you're aware of the disputes in the history of philosophy and in current cognitive science about the extent to which ideas are innate. Right. So there's got to be some basic things like the nature of object or the nature of number that seem to be either b- b- born into every human being or at least learn very, very fast. And So that sort of thing would be the primitives, but that's not very explanatory for the really interesting kinds of creativity in science or the arts because by the time you're doing creative things as an adult I don't think you're working with these primitives anymore you're working with the ideas that have been built up over decades of work and that have gotten far away from the primitives so it's not a way of combining the, the primitive ideas that babies are born with or acquire right away it's rather a matter of taking the stock of ideas that are around in the science of the time and coming with new ways to combine them
1: um so l- let me just um uh get more specific on on the the concept or the issue of uh conceptual change um which is which has gotten a lot of attention throughout the philosophy of science um and in particular uh you know from Thomas Kuhn and the whole issue of um incommensurability between conceptual frameworks um so you present uh, a nice series of examples in um, which you're comparing different conceptual frameworks um, for explaining um, theological, qualitative, and mechanistic. Um, and of course, this is this is very very relevant today when we're we're talking about explaining the mind mechanistically through through neuroscience and down from there to. You know, lower biological uh, mechanisms um so maybe you could say something about um the difference between these frameworks, maybe going through one of your examples um and uh, and then um I guess how you bridge the the incommensurability issue
0: mm-hmm. that's a fascinating question, so maybe the best example to pick is the one where. Uh, most people are more familiar with, and I am too, is just the question of mind. How do we understand how mind works? So traditionally, and among people who still have traditional views, the basic understanding of mind is theological. and The, the mind is the soul. It's something that God made uh, to... Uh, Enable people to think with and so that would be the explanation now obviously not a very good scientific explanation and i think it's being superseded by ideas from psychology and neuroscience but still for lots of people that's the dominant way in which they they think about uh, the the mind as the soul which is a theological idea it's tied in with ideas about immortality with ideas about uh, free will that many people naturally find very appealing so that's that's the the theological view of the mind. Qualitative ideas are ones where you try to associate some kind of uh, feature uh, with, with the mind, not necessarily a theological feature, but something that's supposed to be a, a special uh, property. Uh, I'm not sh- but Perhaps a better example of that It comes from biology, where people had theories of life in the 19th century that said that things are alive because they have a vital force. Uh, some versions of of dualism that aren't theological are a bit like that, too. I think that there's properties of, of mental phenomena that are just qualitatively different from anything physical. What I think has happened routinely, though, in the philosophy in the history of science is that... Um, the theological and the qualitative explanations have given away to a a mechanistic one. Well, what do I mean by mechanism? There's lots of really great work on mechanisms in recent philosophy of science. The basic idea is quite simple. A mechanism is a system of parts that interact to produce changes. We're all familiar with mechanisms and things like bicycles, which we can put together, or can openers. Uh, But the, the ancient Greeks had the insight that Things that don't look terribly mechanistic, like minds, actually are. And it's, all, it's all a question of identifying the parts and identifying their interactions and seeing how complex changes can result from that. And I think that's the point that cognitive science has happily ar- uh, arrived at. Mm-hmm. During the 70s and 80s, people talked mostly about Mechanisms in terms of mental representations and computational processes, which I think is still a useful way to think about psychological mechanisms. But increasingly, we're able to think about the neural mechanisms that make this work by looking at the parts, namely neurons and populations of neurons, and looking at their interactions through uh, excitation and inhibition that leads to neural firing and getting a sense of how these simple cells can actually do something as complicated as produce human thinking. So I think in the case of mind, we're uh, in a quite exciting uh, stage right now that in an earlier book, The Brain and the Meaning of Life, I called The Brain Revolution. Mm -hmm. This really is a conceptual revolution of of major proportions where old ideas about the mind as something that's just theological or something that's qualitatively different from physical processes turns out to be understandable in quite a deep way by looking at neural processes
1: do, do you see the 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 representations you know the i guess old computational sorts of models uh, how do, how do you see those fitting into this new neuromechanistic uh, approach how do
0: i see what fitting in with
1: the the, new? the you know what you mentioned about uh, you know mental representations and um, i guess the, the sort of the older s- computational models of information
0: processing. I think that this is the, the, all these older ideas of information processing are now integratable with uh, new neural ideas. So the very last chapter of the book provides a hint of how I think this is starting to work. I, I give an account of what I think scientific concepts are Uh, in terms of some very new ideas about uh, how neural processes operate that originate with my colleague, uh, Chris Elias-Smith. He's got a book coming out later in the year from Oxford that I think is actually, uh, well, revolutionary might be too strong, but momentous certainly isn't. What he's developed is ways of thinking about scientific concepts or concepts in general, but also mental representations in general, as being carried out by, by neural networks. The early ideas about neural networks that um, became prominent in the 80s simply weren't strong enough to account for how different kinds of complex inferences can be made by people when they're doing interesting sorts of problem-solving or language use. I think Chris has got an idea that he calls semantic pointers that provides a way of seeing how... Very simple kinds of neural parts, namely the the neurons, the cells, if there's lots of them and they're interacting in complex ways, can carry all the properties that have been attributed to to concepts and so what I did in the last chapter is apply uh, chrysalismus idea to uh, to scientific concepts as a way of getting at uh, well a lot of the different aspects that they're supposed to have.
1: Um, so uh, could you could you maybe give an example of you know of of the application of this theory
0: of the semantic pointer idea Yeah okay, well, to do that, you have to get a sense of of what a neural network can do, and so the early neural networks could do things that were sort of concept like and that you could have a bunch of neurons connected to each other by excitatory inhibitory links and they could serve as a classifier mm-hmm. so that you could provide them with some inputs, and then they would give an input, an output that would say something like, oh, that's a cat or that's a dog. Uh, what these neural networks weren't any good at, though, was somehow turning that into complex inferences where you might say that if a dog chases a cat, then the cat runs away. Uh-huh. That, that's got complex causal relations. It's got the if-then relation. How on earth can you do something with that, with, with just a bunch of neurons that are spreading activation to each other? I think the semantic pointer idea is powerful because it enables the concepts like cat and dog to operate, both in a symbolic mode where they're connected up to each other, where you can say something like, if a dog chases a cat, then the cat runs away, but also while retaining a lot of the representational capacities of the neurons, say, for cat and dog, such as, uh, oh, cats have fur and dogs have fur. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of technical, but it's, I think, very powerful, and it's a big part of what should be a next stage of cognitive science, and hence of the cognitive science of science, that we're able to take the explanation of the most complicated kinds of scientific reasoning down to the neural level.
1: Hmm. So, um, I, I, uh, I just want, before I ask about, um, science education, which I wanted to get to, um, I, I mentioned the, the incommensurability issue, um, in the context of conceptual change and, you know, Thomas Kuhn's book, as you know, is, um, the, I think you mentioned the most cited book in the history of, of philosophy science, um, and you say that, um, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm quoting here, um, fine-grained and philosophically informed analysis of conceptual development does not support Kuhn's radical claims about scientific revolutions. And I was just wondering if you could uh, uh, you know, give us a little background on that you know, response to Kuhn.
0: Sure. Uh, That really goes back to my earlier book, Conceptual Revolutions, and Uh to work by other people who've worked in the the history and philosophy of science, people like Nancy Nersessian. Kuhn had some wonderfully bold conjectures about what goes on in the history of science about it just simply not being cumulative. But I think his boldest conjectures just turned out to be false. His radical claims about incommensability, saying that people live in different worlds and Uh there's just no way in which they can understand each other, are just wrong. If you look at the history of science, you can see that, in fact, most people during the Darwinian Revolution adopted Darwin's ideas. Most people uh, were, in fact, taken by Lavoisier's idea about oxygen and rejected phlogiston. So that he simply was historically wrong about the degree of incommensurability that was supposed to have operated in those cases. There's certainly lots of interesting kinds of conceptual change, the conceptual frameworks that people are working with are very different. I'm talking about introducing as part of the brain revolution uh, uh, that lots of people have been contributing to, that uh, lots of new ideas that weren't there before and that don't fit very well with older theological ideas about the soul. But does that mean they're incommensurable in the sense that there's no possibility of comprehension? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true at all. I can understand uh, theological ideas, and I think uh, theologians can understand the new neural ideas like semantic pointers. And then they can get involved in what should be the rational process of figuring out which set of ideas have more explanatory coherence. So I think Kuhn simply exaggerated the degree of incommensurability. He was right that conceptual change takes place and that you need to see that there are different kinds of conceptual schemes that are being operated. But I argued way back in Conceptual Revolutions and published, in, I guess that's 20 years ago, that uh, that uh, in fact conceptual change isn't a barrier to to rationality in science. I guess there's a kind of incommensurability that might be seen to be arising now when you've got uh, – a science education taking place where some people just don't want to hear about Darwin but what's going on there isn't conceptual change in the radical sort that, that Kuhn was talking about that would prevent un- understanding what I argued in the chapter on Darwin in the book that I actually wrote mostly for, for science educators is that you have to appreciate that a big barrier to conceptual change isn't cognitive, it's actually emotional, mm-hmm. it's, it's not just that people can't understand the ideas they understand them, they just don't like them uh, they don't like Darwinian ideas because they're seen as a challenge to religion. or It's exactly the same as the way that people who work for big oil companies or for, for uh, provinces like Alberta or states like Texas that depend on the oil industry, they perfectly well understand the evidence that's being proposed for climate change. And they certainly understand the hypothesis that people are causing climate change. They just don't like it.
1: Well, I mean, this sort of, uh, I, this occurred to me earlier when we were, when we were talking about, um, uh, belief or vision among scientists. Um, so there's, there's a sense in which, um, you know, one might say something like, "Well, you know, if if it's one thing to talk about the public being, you know, recalcitrant to these changes because to, to different ideas because they're they have these various, you know, religious commitments or personal commitments or or economic commitments of some sort, um, and that's okay because they're not scientists and they're not trying to seek the truth. They're not trying to, you know, objectivity may not be their goal." Um, and so I, I guess the question is if um if these sorts of uh emotional, you wanna put that, emotional attitudes um are part of a model of belief or vision even in science, to to what extent does that appear to undermine undermine um the idea of science pursuing, you know, ob- pursuing truth and 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 being objective, the the objectivity of the scientific enterprise.
0: It makes it really complicated <laughs> uh, because you can't say that oh, it should be obvious that if people just manage to plug in the right probabilities, everyone will come to the same conclusion. Now, people aren't probability engines. I think they're coherence engines, and the the mind doesn't. The human mind doesn't neatly compartmentalized into cognitive and emotional components. Everything you know about the brain finds that what we think of as cognitive parts are intensely interconnected with what we think of as the more emotional parts of the brain. And in fact, I think that's a good thing for decision making and also for deciding What's important enough to think about, the fact that emotion and cognition are tightly integrated into the brain is actually a strength, not a weakness by and large. That's what provides us with the kinds of focus and motivation that can only be put artificially into into computers. So that's basically a, a good thing that we've got that, but we'd have to realize that sometimes it leads to serious distortions. It can allow people who have got the knowledge uh, to, to recognize climate change as a problem and still continue to ignore it. Or it can allow people who ought to know enough biology to see that evolution by natural selection is a powerful explanation of the origin of species, but nevertheless want to circumvent it. Um, so it's, it, it shows just how deeply psychological these kinds of conflicts are.
1: So so how would you describe then uh, the notion of objectivity in science?
0: Partly at the individual level and partly at the social level. Uh-huh. I don't talk in this book much about social processes, although that's certainly an important part of science where one person's biases are not the same as others and so having people operate in groups can be one way of at least canceling out the personal motivations. But a lot of it, I think, is just a matter of of training and education uh, so that uh, scientists are by and large trained to appreciate how theories can be evaluated based on the evidence. They get a sense of what evidence is. They get a sense of what studies are good and repeatable and robust and done in a reliable way using good instruments. And so that's part of, of scientific training. And I think it would be a very good thing if people much more broadly had a sense of, of what the difference is between good evidence and, uh, and, uh, and worthless evidence. Something even that I think philosophers could stand to use. You still find people in uh, uh, different kinds of analytic philosophy of mind who think that their own intuitions about stories they've made up about people tell you something about the mind, which is a very different notion of evidence than you'll find in scientists who get a sense through their training and their experience of what makes an experiment good evidence or not.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, the issue of science education, you one what, what of the things that you that you wrote uh I thought was, was extremely provocative. Um you said that in uh, science education involves cultural remediation and even psychotherapy, uh in addition to more cognitive kinds of instruction. Um and so I was wondering, well, does that does that mean uh, that anyone who's, say, skeptical about the methods of science uh, in favor of uh, religion or, or as you just mentioned, you know, the dictates of intuition, um, is, it, is anybody who's skeptical about science in those ways in, in need of psychotherapy?
0: Well, I didn't mean to suggest that they were mentally ill. <laughs> but I didn't mean psychotherapy. But I mean, one of the things that that psychotherapists tend to do with people is this is the cognitive kinds of psychotherapy, not Freudian kinds. In cognitive therapy, you get people to talk about what their beliefs are and whether they're based on good evidence and what the goals are and whether they're consistent with other sorts of things. And so you get allow people to get a better understanding of of the origins of their beliefs, some of which may be false and causing them great distress. <laughs> uh, so i didn't mean psychotherapy in the sense of curing a mental illness but taking into account some of the same things so if you have uh students or you can also be teachers who are highly skeptical of the darwinian theory i think it does help to appreciate that what's going on there is not just a matter of explanatory coherence it's not just that there's an alternative theory such as uh the creationists proposed the mm-hmm. modern day ones, I forget what it 's called the theory it's an of intelligent design, yeah, which is supposed to be an alternative theory but yeah. it 's not just a question of an alternative theory that may compete in some legitimate scientific way, given that in fact there is a huge amount of evidence for theory of evolution and not very much for this one. The explanation of why people prefer intelligent design can't be, in fact, one that involves explanatory coherence. You have to get into the deeper questions that are intensely emotional, that are tied in with goals. The goal in this case is that people want to retain their traditional religious views. And I think if you try to ignore that and try to say, oh, it's just a question of scientific evidence, you're not going to understand why the, the large opposition to Darwinian theory still survives in some jurisdictions.
1: Do, do you see some sorts of similar obstacles to um, to accepting a, a more mechanistic view of the mind as well?
0: Oh, definitely. That's a case where the conceptual change is is not just cognitive; it's also emotional. Yeah. Lots of people just don't like the idea that mind operates on mechanisms. I get this this in teaching quite often. Usually by about halfway through my introduction to cognitive science that I teach to a hundred students or so uh, a year, I see them starting to, well, (laughs) squirm (laughs) because they're starting to think, well, does this mean that I'm a robot? And of course, I have to explain to them that there are different kinds of mechanisms and people are much more complicated than any robots that are currently being developed. But people, in this case students, definitely do find it uh, disconcerting to think that the mind might be open for mechanistic explanations. One of the big issues, which is one of the central topics in philosophy, of course, is the question of what does this do to freedom of the will? Does this mean that my actions are caused? Does that mean that everything I do is worthless? Uh, I don't think it does at all. I, I wrote my last book, The Brain and the Meaning of Life, to try to argue that even... Given all that 's being learned about neural mechanisms and their incredible success in explaining lots of aspects of human decision making, there are lots of ways in which life can have value and meaning, even though we're going through major conceptual changes and throwing out those old wonderful ideas like immortality and free will
1: um, well that's that sort of the two different questions we're, we're starting to, we're running out of time, but i did I did want to um, pursue two 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 strands of of what you just said. Um, um, one is the idea that you know we are in this sort of conceptual revolution in a way, um, and that at some point your students and uh, mine too, you know, sort of say, well, geez, am I am I just a machine? And of course, it all depends on what you mean by a machine. There are different kinds. Um, and there's there was a comment that you made in the book um, that uh, emer- the ideas of emergence are are hard um and uh i was I was interested in pursuing you know why exactly w- why you thought that was um and then uh for a final question um the idea of values in science you know where where these um uh, where values are sup- uh, supposed to you know play a role in science when it's not a a negative one of of you know, producing bad types of bias. Um, so, could you could you say something about those two issues? One, the emergence. Yeah, those
0: are both issue. really important, but yeah. I, I think they're they're separate. Yes, they so are. Start with emergence. Mickey Chi is a psychologist who's done a lot of work looking at the difficulty that students have in considering processes that are emergent. I think a lot of the problem there comes because people in general have got much too simple a view of causality. We're quite happy with causality where A causes B and maybe B causes C, but where you've got, say, interactions between A and B that are together over time producing C, then people people get really confused. So I think it's just a complexity of causation that people don't understand very well. Mm -hmm. It's extremely important for understanding the mind at a couple of different levels because take something like the notion of a representation. A representation is not usually the property of an individual neuron. It's an emergent property of a whole bunch of neurons interacting with each other. And so that's a kind of, of, uh, of emergence of representation that isn't obvious. Similarly, the most complicated sorts of thought processes we have, say, for example, evaluating hypotheses based both on its explanatory and emotional coherence, that's extraordinarily emergent at a higher level. And so without things like the kinds of computer models that we're developing nowadays, it's very hard to understand. So I think that part of the resistance to to mechanistic views of mind is not is difficulty in appreciating these kinds of uh, emergent neural processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a part, of, part of it is also tied to values because of the fears that we've been talking about to the fear that this kind of view of mind would counter our values about people's freedom, for example. I don't think there's free will, but I think that autonomy in a different way is actually in a very important value that people have where autonomy means that you're doing things that are not being coerced by other people or that are not happening because you've got some kind of uh, diseased brain function operating. And so autonomy I think is a perfectly good value that we can retain. Uh, So, what sometimes you have to do is when you're engaging in a scientific revolution is to be prepared to change not only your your concepts but also your values in a way that I think could benefit people. I don't go into that much in this book but in the earlier book on the brain and the meaning of life, I talk a lot about needs. I think that you can have scientifically validated notions about needs that provide an idea of what values people ought to have. And so the question of of emotional values can in fact be addressed in much the same rational way that the question of what are the good explanatory theories It's different because it is a normative question, but it's uh, it's it's definitely open to rational discussion
1: well that's very very interesting i would be it would be great to to pursue that but um i think we're we're out of time um so maybe you could just say a word. Uh, about what your next project will be after, um, yeah, what the next project is going to be.
0: Uh, thanks. So a lot of what I'm trying to do now is to expand the explanatory power of the cognitive sciences, in psychology and neuroscience, into the social sciences. So uh, a lot of the phenomena we were talking about, saying the spread of ideas about climate change, are, are social phenomena, the things that need partly... Uh, sociological explanations, political explanations, sometimes also economic explanations. And I think there's now enough known about the psychological and the neural processes that it becomes possible to to rebuild a lot of the social sciences uh, using these kinds of insights. So this is a project that's sometimes been called cognitive social science that I think is now becoming realizable. So a lot of what I'm doing right now is, in fact, trying to develop the relevance of cognitive science, not just to science, but to the social sciences in general.
1: Very good. Um, so, well, well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I, I enjoyed talking with you, and I'm sure our, our listeners will be, will enjoy the um, hearing about your book.
0: Thank you very much. Okay,
1: thank you. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Paul Thagard, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, about his new book, The Cognitive Science of Science, which is just out from the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Fichtor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, and thank you for listening.